Well, if you're visiting with us for the first time, I want to welcome you. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. Glad to have you here. This is our time now where we open God's Word and we look at what He has to say to us. God wrote the Bible to His people, and there is much that He has to teach us. And there is much on the birth of Christ in Scripture. I invite you this morning to open to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. As I said earlier, there's a, a Bible probably near you, under a seat if you need it. Or in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, that's near the, probably the last third of your Bible, at the beginning there of the New Testament. And we want to consider uh, what the birth of Jesus has to teach us. There's a lot of thoughts and ideas going around this time of year as people consider that, as people think about what does the birth of Jesus have to do with us? What does it have to do with gifts? What does it have to do with celebrating, with feasting? Well, I just want to read to you before I, I preach on a section of it. I want to read to you Luke 2, 25-35. And we see this account of baby Jesus. He's only eight days old coming into the temple with his parents. And I want to focus on that section of Scripture there. The message is entitled, Salvation Has Come. So Luke 2, uh, let's just start in verse 21 to get a little context. When eight days had passed... Before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray and ask the Lord's help in this this morning. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see the truth in this text. You've inspired it. Your Holy Spirit worked in Luke's mind and his heart to write this account as he went and interviewed all the eyewitnesses that were there, especially Mary, and he wrote this down so that we might read it today, so that we might hear it proclaimed and preached this morning, and that we would believe, that we would believe that it happened and see its importance for salvation in history and our own personal salvation as well. Help me as I proclaim this passage. Help me to proclaim it with boldness and truth and love. And I pray that the hearers would accept the message, they would accept your teaching from Scripture and take it into their hearts and believe it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
that we sing of Christmas. We've been doing that with some great Christmas hymns. There's a lot of Christmas music out there that's not really biblical, but these hymns that people have been singing for hundreds, sometimes even a thousand plus years, are biblical in the sense that they point to good theology and scripture. So we've been singing about this idea, this holiday called Christmas. We talk of the holiday season. We rejoice in family gatherings and we eat sometimes too much food and enjoy too many desserts around Christmas. We did some of that even here last week as a church. It's a long-held tradition in Western society to gather together and, and feast and have a good time and celebrate Christmas. But, but I want to be clear, and as a church we want to be clear, we don't celebrate a Christ Mass. Traditionally, the name Christmas comes from Christ Mass. The Mass is a re-sacrifice of Christ on the altar. Even though we use that name, we don't celebrate a Christ Mass. We don't uh, come and, and offer up Christ once again on the altar. That's not what we're doing on the 25th. That's not what we're doing here even on the Lord's Day on Sunday before the 25th. Yes, we, we feast, we give gifts, we rejoice, and we should. But it's over the birth of the Savior. It's not to perform a sacrifice again. It's already been done. It's not to celebrate something other than Christ. It's to celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas, to celebrate Christmas, is not commanded in Scripture. It's not a holy day. The New Testament says that Jesus fulfilled the law. We're not commanded to celebrate feasts and holy days. But it is a long-held tradition, and I, I see nothing wrong with gathering together on the 25th and celebrating with family and friends and looking to the Lord Jesus and looking to His birth. That's a good thing. But Of course, we're not legalistic about it. It's not commanded in Scripture that we do so. But because of much of the world talking about it right now, because of much of Western civilization getting excited about the Christmas season. It's a great opportunity to talk about the birth of Christ, the Messiah, and it's a great opportunity to proclaim the gospel once again. So that's what I intend to do today from this passage. I intend to do these two things, to, to remember our dear Savior's birth, if you're a believer, and maybe uh, proclaim the gospel, of course, if you're a believer once again, but for unbelievers to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from this text. That's why it's here, I believe, so that we can rejoice and we can believe. So, indeed, it's those two things that I want to do. And the day he was born was a special day. To say that we're not commanded to celebrate doesn't mean it wasn't special. It just means that we're not to have all of these feasts and sacrifices that have had so much religiosity and works based on them. But it was a special day, a very special day. In fact, you see just eight days later what happens as his parents bring him into the temple. This, this little baby boy, this little child. And here's this old man just running up and grabbing that baby. If that happened with my child, I'd be very upset. But uh, the parents were already amazed at all the miraculous things that had happened. The angel speaking to Joseph, the angel speaking to Mary, and all of these things happening miraculously in Mary's womb as she gave birth, having never been with a man, having never had sexual relations, she gives birth to a child. It's not just a, a virgin birth, but a virgin conception because the Holy Spirit used her DNA and formed up the body, the flesh, the humanity of Christ. So today, as we look at this, really, it's a Christmas hymn that Simeon proclaimed. It's like a Christmas hymn to us. As we look at it, I want you to see three things that it teaches us here. This old man, Simeon, he's waiting for salvation to come. He sees the Savior as a tiny little child, and he begins to proclaim truth. He begins to proclaim truth from the Holy Spirit. He prophesies 
And it's, I believe, a good hymn for Christmas as we look at it. Well, the very first point that I want you to see here is the peace of salvation. There's a great peace with salvation. Simeon sees that peace of salvation. We ought to see a a peace in salvation. It's not simply just a a, a sort of a religion that we call ourselves Christian and we go about our, our daily duties and we come to church and we sort of pat ourselves on the back. No, there's a real peace that comes with being saved. There's a real peace of mind, a peace in your heart. And that's what Simeon had as he looked forward to the coming Christ and also as he saw that little child come into the temple. So we're introduced in verse 25 to this man, Simeon. He's probably quite old. We don't know his age exactly, but he probably has outlived the normal lifespan of that time. We could expect that he's over 80 years old. It might be as old as 100. He could be even older than that. In verse 25, it says that there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. So he lived there. Uh, We're given his name. And he was righteous and devout. Righteous meaning that he faithfully obeyed the law of God from a heart of faith. This is not telling us that he had worked so hard his whole life to be saved. It's telling us that he was already changed, he was already saved, and he's living that out. He's showing good fruit, and he's obeying the law of God through a heart of faith. He's righteous, not perfect. Nobody's perfect but Jesus, but he's he's trying to live out faithfully the law of God. He's devout, which means he, he feared God. Devout means you fear God. You fear him in a good way. You have a reverence for God. You, you decide that you're going to fear God in a healthy way. You fear God and you live out a life of godliness. This kind of language does tell us, though, that he's already been born again. We know that the Spirit is upon him. And, of course, that's very likely that he's born again if the Spirit's upon him. Not always guaranteed in the Old Testament, but righteous and devout with the Spirit upon him. He's already had a heart change. The Lord has worked in his heart, and he's a faithful man. He's just waiting to see the Messiah. And it says he was looking. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. What's he doing? He's looking for someone to be the consolation of Israel. He's not just looking for a good teacher. He's not just looking for a new rabbi, a new religion. He's not looking for somebody who knows even the Bible better than him. No, he's looking for someone who will consolate, who will console, who will comfort Israel. He's not just looking for a nice guy to show up. You know, he's, he's not sitting in the temple every day examining every baby as the baby comes in and thinking, you know, I wish some nice guy would just come in, a nice baby that's going to grow up and show me how to live a good example. That's not what he means by consolation. Not just a nice guy. Jesus is not, he is a nice guy, but it's not that that Simeon's looking for. He's not just looking for a miracle worker. Jesus will do miracles. Jesus will do mighty things. That's not what he's looking for. He's not just looking for somebody who will put on a show, who will do entertainment. What's Simeon looking for? The consolation of Israel, the comforter. Israel was suffering. Israel was under Roman oppression. The people of God were being oppressed. And not only that, But they knew in their heart that there needed to be a final sacrifice. Every year they went up to the temple. They're sacrificing the sheep, the goats, the bulls. Every year they knew that wasn't going to do it because next year and next month and next feast, they had to do it all over again. So they're looking. And Simeon especially, he must have been taught well the scriptures as a child in his whole life. He has been looking for that comforter, the one who would bring comfort, peace. 
The one who would not only bring peace to the nation, but peace in each one of their hearts. Those who believed in God and followed him. And it says the Holy Spirit was upon him. Like many others mentioned in the birth story of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is active. At special times in the history of the Bible, we see the Holy Spirit coming in and and acting upon people. He would act upon people to prophesy. He would act upon people to write scripture. And so here he comes and he has already touched John the Baptist in the womb as a baby. He has made John the Baptist kick at Mary's womb as she comes close. He has the uh, Holy Spirit's come on Mary, come on Jesus in the womb, come on Elizabeth, come on Zacharias. Those are John the Baptist's parents. So Simeon had the Holy Spirit active upon him not to show off, not to attract people to throw money at him, not to be a prosperity preacher. What's he doing? He's got the Holy Spirit. God has given it to him for a very special purpose. To be able to spot that baby as he comes into the temple and proclaim what he's about to say to the people gathered around and especially to the parent. That's why he's got the Holy Spirit. And it says in verse 26, and he had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he's not even going to die before the Messiah comes. This is not a punishment. We might think it's a punishment. You know, he's got to live into old age and suffer all these maladies and pain and walk around and maybe limp around the city of Jerusalem. This is a good thing to know that the Lord would come in your lifetime. To know that from the time of Abraham, the people of God, Israel, had been waiting on the Messiah and now you know he's coming in your lifetime. What a blessing. That would be a great blessing to see baby Jesus, the Messiah, in your own lifetime. And now we pick up in verse 27. He came in the Spirit. That means he's under the influence of the Spirit. Why? So he can see the right child. So he can pick the right one. He doesn't want to go up to the wrong child and proclaim he's the Messiah. The Spirit is working on his heart and mind to be able to know. And the parents brought the child Jesus in. That's because Mary has purification sacrifices. Also, it's probably around the same time, the eighth day, that Jesus would have been circumcised. And so they're going to carry out for him, that's Jesus, the custom of the law, circumcision, and the sacrifices. The word here for temple doesn't mean the actual inside of the Holy of Holies. doesn't even mean where the priests go inside the building. But it's the temple courts where all the Gentiles could go. There's an outside area called the Court of Gentiles. Then, then beyond a little fence, there's a more inner area outside still of the main temple called the Court of Women. So either Simeon's in the court of Gentiles or where the women, the Jewish women could go, the court of women. He's waiting there. He's watching. He's praising the Lord. He's probably praying or reciting scripture, doing the various things he would do there each day. And under the Holy Spirit's influence, he is prompted to go that day. We don't even know that he went every day. It's possible that he didn't. It's possible that he had a family, a business. possible that he did not go every day. But that day, the Spirit prompted him to go and he was ready to see the Christ child. Can you believe he's watched hundreds of babies come in, maybe thousands of babies come in to that temple. Is this the one? Is this the one? God, is this the one? And now he knows that today's the day. The Holy Spirit is upon him. Today is the day. And it just says he took him into his arms. It doesn't even say what happened with the parents, what's being said. He just probably runs up, grabs that baby, let me hold this beautiful child who is the Savior. He took him into his arms, verse 28. He blessed God. That means he praised God right away. As soon as he, soon as he saw Jesus and took him in his arms, he, he praised the Father. And he says, now, Lord, 
So here's, here's what I would say is a little hymn. It's not written as a hymn, but let's just use our imaginations. Call it a Christmas hymn. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. After this long life, after all these years, all these babies, all these pains, and probably watching his loved ones die, maybe his own wife had already passed on, because she's not mentioned here. He might have watched family members, siblings, parents die. And he is living to a good old age, but he's ready. He's ready to go and see the Lord. And he says, finally, Lord, you're going to release me. Literally, it reads, now, Master, you're releasing your slave in peace. Slave is a good word. If you're a slave of Christ, if you're a slave of God, that means you're his servant. That means you live for him. You've been bought by him. That's what slaves were. They were bought by others. Not such a good term if you're bought by another human being, of course, but to be a slave of God is a good thing. And he says, finally, you're releasing me in peace. He's ready to die in peace. He has a peace of salvation. He's ready to go and be with the Lord. As a slave of the Lord, as a, as a faithful servant here, he's, he's watched and he's waited his whole life, and now he can enter into the rest of his master. He doesn't have to worry. He, he, he has confidence. He has assurance that will come after death. He doesn't have to worry about where he's going. He doesn't have to think, where will I go, Lord? I'm not sure. He has a great confidence. He has, he has the eyes of faith. He saw that this was the child, the Christ child, the Son of God. God had opened his heart and opened his eyes. Not, not only that, he had the Holy Spirit to identify the right one. Many people saw Jesus in his flesh. Many people saw the Son of God in his humanity. and They couldn't see through the flesh. They only saw a person. And they rejected him. We read about that in John just a few minutes ago. They rejected Jesus. He looks like any old man. How can this, how can this one be the Messiah? They made fun of him. Did you hear in John 8 where they said, we're not born of fornication? You know what they're insinuating there? There's this mystery of who Jesus' father is, and they're kind of throwing that back at him. They made fun of him. They mocked him. They hated him. But not Simeon. Simeon saw who he was. Uh, Simeon was, was at peace because he had salvation. How could, he, how could he face such death? Because he had faith in Christ. He was at peace. Are you ready for that? If this was your last day, do you have peace in your heart for salvation? Do you have a peace in your heart that just says, I'm ready to go? Thank you for releasing me because the body is weak and the body is, is suffering here. And he's like, I'm going to be released now. He'll get a new body at the resurrection. He knows that, but he's going to be released. Any of us, this could be our last day. I had a classmate from high school that I played football with. Thanksgiving weekend, he's a few years older than me, driving down the highway at night. They find his car off the road later. He's dead. From an aneurysm, probably. One second he's alive. He's celebrating Thanksgiving with his kids, with his wife that I know as well. Next minute, he's dead. Thankfully, he knew the Lord. Thankfully, he's with the Lord now. But we never know. We've got to be like Simeon. We know and we have peace in our heart through faith. When we come to accept Jesus Christ, and we come to, to, to love him, when we come to turn from our sins, do we have peace in our heart then we know that if we were to die today, people would miss me, people would be sad, my family would, would feel a bit of pain, but I would be at peace 
I was talking to Mike recently. He's going into this great surgery, the quadruple bypass. They're going to cut open his chest, all that gruesome stuff. He says, I'm at peace. If I would have died when I ran off the road a few months ago, he said, I'm at peace. I'm ready to go. That's what a believer says. They have peace in salvation. Well, secondly, the light of salvation. Not only is Jesus the peace of salvation, but he's the light of salvation. We need a light to see in the darkness. You walk around my house at night, you're going to step on all kinds of things, hurt yourself upstairs with the boys. You're going to step on Legos. You're going to fall over in pain. You need a flashlight or you need to turn on the light switch so you don't trip on those things. Well, we we need a light because the world is a dark place. We need a spiritual light. The world is a very dark place. You don't think it's dark? Maybe you're, you're having a great time in your family in this Christmas season, but the world's a dark place. There's people dying and suffering all the time. They took some Christians out in Iran a few days ago and just shot them in the head because they were Christians. They had converted from being Muslim to Christianity. Babies are, are dying every day. Unborn babies are dying every day. The world is a dark place. Governments and power brokers of the world are trying to make it darker. But we also have darkness in our hearts too. Not just the world, but we have a darkness in our hearts that has to be overcome by the light. So look at what Simeon says. Why, why does he have peace? What's all this peace about? Because this light of salvation, verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. He immediately knows this baby that he holds in his arm is the one who will give comfort to Israel. He is the salvation. It's sort of a unique word for salvation here in the original Greek. And it means pertaining to salvation. Not just that you're saved from your sins. Or not just that you're, you're saved from eternal judgment. But everything you could think of pertaining to salvation is included in this person, this baby at the time, Jesus Christ. Everything from beginning to end. Everything you would ever need to be saved. Every blessing that you would ever have because you're saved comes from this little one. That Simeon's holding in his hands. Everything God has decreed pertaining to salvation is in this Christ child. And notice he says, your salvation. Simeon doesn't even say my salvation. He's not even, not even focused on himself. He says, your salvation, God. It's God's salvation. It's the, the salvation that comes from God. Simeon did nothing to gain that salvation. It's not his to, to give or to, to throw away. It's not his to earn. What could Simeon do to earn his salvation? What could he do? Even in the Old Testament, you, if you tried to obey the law, you still could not earn your salvation. People thought that. That's the problem when Jesus comes. Everyone thinks they can be righteous, but originally it wasn't like that. God gave them the law because they already were his people. You're my people, God says. Now obey my commandments and show the world my glory. That was the purpose. That's the purpose of every Christian. They have been saved. They're given the law of Christ. They're given the commandments of Christ. They're given the New Testament to live it out. But it's not Simeon's salvation. It's, it's God's salvation. He, Simeon, could not earn it by works because salvation is only given by God's grace. If, if you're a follower of Christ today, if you're here today and you say, I am a believer, I've trusted in Christ, I've repented of my sin, that wasn't your salvation to earn or to get or to steal It was given by God. For by grace you have been saved. Through faith, and even that's not of yourselves, it's a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It is the gift of God. So he says, For my eyes have seen your salvation, God, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, 
God's prepared it. It's God's salvation. He's planned it throughout all of history. From the time he created everything, he already had planned all of this. He knew what was going to happen. And not only that, but he had ordained and decreed what would happen in the future. He's planned it all. And it's, it's been done in the presence of all the peoples. God has prepared it. He's revealed himself in creation, even to the pagans at the time. They knew something, someone had created the world. You can't get all those billions of stars out there without a creator. You can't have all that there is on this earth and the beauty of life without a creator. Everyone knew that there was a creator, Romans 1 says, and they did not give him thanks. And instead of turning to the true God, each group of people developed their own gods and started to worship them and created their own religion. But God's been preparing all along through the nation of Israel that there would be a Savior. God is sovereign. He's supreme over every event. And in the life of Christ, even Christ's life, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, the Father's sovereign over all of it. He's prepared all these things to happen. And Simeon realizes this. And it's been done in front of all the peoples. Not the people, not just Israel, but all the peoples. Israel and all the nations. Everyone is eventually going to hear about this throughout the world. Everyone's going to to hear about this before Christ returns for that final battle and reign upon the earth forever and ever. Before all the nations. And then it says, in the presence. You see that? In the presence of all the peoples. Literally, it means in their face. Not in a bad sense like we use it in English, in your face. No, they've been able to see it. They've been able to hear about it. I don't think this means everybody at the time believed in Jesus. Of course, that's not right. That's not true. It doesn't even mean that they knew he was being born at that time. But the idea is that all the peoples are going to benefit from this Messiah. It's not just for Israel. He's going to be the Savior of the world. He's going to be the Savior of all tribes and tongues and peoples and nations. And Simeon says he's a light. You see that in verse 30 still? You've prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light. A a light of the world. This is quoted in in Matthew 4.16. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. Uh, Matthew's looking back to Isaiah 9. You know that passage about who Jesus will be? Eternal Father, Counselor. Isaiah 9-2 comes right before that. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And upon those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. The people of Israel even were sitting in darkness. They did not know what truly to do for salvation other than try to just offer up those sacrifices. And there were hints in the Old Testament, but they couldn't put it all together. And even on top of that, you had rulers teaching you the wrong things about the Bible. Pharisees, Sadducees, and another group that's not even mentioned in the Bible who said, you know what, let's just go live in the desert and forget about the whole thing. The Essenes. And Matthew, quoting Isaiah, says, this one who's come, he's the great light that was prophesied in Isaiah. He is a great light. That's why Jesus says in John eight twelve, I'm the light of the world. He's the light. Why? Because he can shine in the darkness of each of our hearts and the darkness that is in the world. I'm the light of the world, Jesus says in John 8, 12. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Simeon recognized that. Before Jesus was old enough to start speaking and teaching, Simeon knew that's the light. That little child, he's the light. And Jesus says, those who have me, those who, who follow Christ, they're not in darkness. They can start to see things that are happening in the world and know that's not right. When you're in darkness, you're not quite sure. You're feeling around. You don't really know what's going on. It's like going into the Grand Canyon at night and it's pitch black and you're going to descend to the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Have you ever seen some of those trails that go down the side? People fall off of those trails in the daytime and die. You try to go down in the pitch black of night, what's going to happen? You're going to break your neck and die. That's walking in the darkness. But if you have a light, and especially if the sun's out, and you have a guide to lead you down into the Grand Canyon, well, then that's a different story. Well, that's Jesus, our guide, our light, the one who will show us the way, the path. He goes on to say, he's a light for two groups of people. He's a light of revelation to the Gentiles, firstly. Who are the Gentiles? Gentiles are all the non-Jews. Most of us here today are Gentile, in the sense that we don't come from a Jewish physical descendant heritage a light for the revelation so that the gentiles can see the savior this is pretty rare this might be the only time in the new testament maybe all of scripture that jew and gentile are put together side by side in a good sense they're both in a positive sense here and the gentiles come first you know usually the gentiles did not know god and they're they're the ones who are going to be punished at the end of the bible the nations as they rage against God's people. But here the Gentiles will see the light. It will be revealed to them. They'll know who this Jesus is. They were the furthest from God, the Gentiles were. And Simeon says, this little child right here is a light and he's going to shine so bright that even the Gentiles will see that Christ. The Gentiles will see the way of salvation. I'm the way the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through me. So they, they've got to know they're going to be saved. They've got to know about Jesus. Isaiah 42 also talks about this coming light to the Gentiles. The Father is speaking in Isaiah 42, 6. It's the Father speaking, but He's speaking to the Messiah. And He says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. I've called you, the Messiah, in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And look, he's going to open blind eyes. He's going to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. What dungeon? The dungeon of slavery to sin and Satan. You see, Satan, he hides sin from you. He puts it over your eyes. He makes you think you're doing just fine. And you're in a dungeon. You're, you're in slavery to Satan. You don't even realize it, the Bible says. And there's one coming, Isaiah says, as God speaks here, there's one coming, the Messiah who will take you out of the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Also Isaiah 49, 6. Last week we went through many of the Old Testament passages. We didn't get to some of these, so I wanted you to see them in the text this week. What's this light of revelation to the Gentiles? Listen to the end of this passage. The Father is again speaking to the Messiah, the Son of God. And the Father says, Is it too small? a thing that you should be my servant. He's talking about the Messiah, to the Messiah. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel? 
I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation, he says, may reach to the end of the earth. Beautiful verse. To the ends of the earth. That's why missionaries go out. They take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But it's not like everyone in America is a Christian or saved. It's not like everyone in America has already heard the gospel. We take it to the ends of the earth, but we also take it here in our community, even in our church here today. Proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus will bring light into the darkness. He'll, he'll shine it on our sin so that we see who we are, we turn from our sin, and we turn to the true light, Jesus Christ. Imagine if you had to walk through life in darkness. Think about that, believer. Think about who you were. You know, some of you, druggies, drunkards, homosexuals, sexual immorality, murderers. And now look at your life. Even if you didn't have any of those things on the list, who really were you before you came to Christ? You want to go back there and walk in darkness? No, Christ is the light. He's shown us the way. Who would ever want to go back? Well, he's not only a light to the Gentiles, but it says in in, uh, this verse as well that he's the glory of your people Israel. Not only is he a light to Gentiles and a light to Israel, of course, But he's their glory. The glory of Israel will be shown to the world. Salvation comes from the Jews. A lot of people hate the Jews today. They hated the Jews back then. The Jews had very strict laws. People didn't like that. People didn't like that the Jews had success in the world. That they survived and did well at times when other nations didn't. Other nations have come and gone. The Jews are still there today. It doesn't mean all of them are saved in their hearts. But God did promise from Abraham there would come a seed singular, who would be the one to bless all the families of the earth. All the nations would come through the seed of Abraham. We might not be Jewish, but we can be part of Abraham's seed if we have faith in Christ. So he's just saying, not only for the nations, but also for Israel. Reminds us of Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Talking again to Israel here. Shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. What darkness? Sin, and Satan, and sin's influence in the world. It's real. It exists. It comes up over and over in Scripture. Darkness will be all over the earth, but the Lord will rise upon you. Israel, the Lord's going to rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. This is the Christ, the Messiah. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Even though Christians sometimes look down upon the Jews today, where does salvation come from? It comes out of the Jewish nation, from the Messiah who was born a Jew, lived the perfect life under the law, fulfilled the law, died on the cross for sinners, was raised again. The whole church for the first decade was mostly Jewish. And they took the gospel to all of us Gentiles. So salvation is offered to all people here. Jew, Gentile, this Christ child will offer salvation to all people, everyone who hears the gospel. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what you've done. It's offered to all. It's offered to all. It doesn't matter how long you've gone on in your life and how many sins you've done. He is a light to all peoples. You know, to accept Christ as your Savior, you don't have to come to the front. You don't have to do what a lot of people teach where you've got to, bow down at some fake altar. You don't have to say some prayer that everybody says called the sinner's prayer. You deal with God in your heart. 
You trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation and you turn from your sins. That's what it means to have the salvation that Simeon had. You put the trust in that one who not only was a baby, is a very cute baby, of course. Babies are always cute, but what about the one dying on the cross for sinners? That was bloody. That was a mess. That's the Christ that you trust in. Not just the baby, but the 30-something-year-old man who died for you, who is the Son of God. So I say, fully give yourself to Him. Follow Him. Put your trust in Him. He's the only one that can save. Thirdly, the last thing I want you to see here, He's not only the peace of salvation, not only the light of salvation, but the sword of salvation. The sword of salvation. Sword is not typically thought of as something that's pleasant, something that's nice, something that's happy. And what Simeon is about to say to the parents, Joseph and Mary, is not going to warm their hearts. It's not going to make them feel warm and cozy. But it is the truth. And he wants them to know it because God wants them to know it. And it's in Scripture because God wants us to see it. The sword is made to cut something into pieces, isn't it? That's what a sword is to do. It's made to cut people into pieces. A knife can be used to cut food into pieces. The Bible is often called the sword, isn't it? The sword of the Spirit. I think of Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's a big sword. And it's got two edges, one on each side. It can slice any way. It's piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, the innermost person, and both joints and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the power of a sword. And the Bible's the sword, but Jesus is a kind of sword as well. He's going to divide people. He, he just by living his life perfectly, teaching the truth of salvation and dying on the cross, that's going to divide people. That's going to divide people that once we're together, they'll be divided. We're talking about how truth divides, how doctrine, you might have heard doctrine divides. I don't want to get too serious about doctrine because it divides. Well, of course it does. It's the truth of God's word and people are going to hate it. They hated Jesus. You heard that in John 8. They're going to hate Christians sometimes as well because truth divides. Jesus divides. He divides people. He divides families. He divides nations. Verse 33 and his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. You think I would be amazed too, but realize they've already been spoken to by an angel. Joseph in a dream, Mary in the daytime saw the angel as she was outside. And she sees this angel. And, and all these miraculous things have happened with her cousin Elizabeth. But even this still amazes them. And I'm glad that it does. It should amaze us as well. This man just comes up, takes the baby and starts talking from God, basically, about him. And Simeon blessed them. So now he, he blesses them. He prays for them, in other words. And he says to Mary. So he's speaking directly to Mary here. By the way, Mary is just a human woman who's righteous and devout because she's been changed here in her heart as well. She's not perfect. She's not sinless like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Mary's not the immaculate, perfect person. Mary didn't ascend into heaven like Christ did. Now he turns to her though, Simeon does. She's a godly woman in the sense that she tried to live a godly life. And not only that, but she had been born again. And so Simeon's going to say something to her. Behold, take notice, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. There's two groups, notice. 
Some who fall and some who rise. That's not the same group. It's not they fall down and then they rise up. It's this idea that you see throughout the Bible that there's two groups of people even in Israel. One group of people will see Christ and they'll hear the gospel and they'll reject him. They'll see all his works, those who lived in that day. But today they'll read the Bible and see his works and they'll hear the gospel, that they can be saved from their sins, saved from eternal punishment, and they'll reject him. That's one group. That's the group that falls. They'll fall down. They think they're going along well, and then they'll hear this and they'll reject it, and essentially they're going to be lowered by God. They're going to fall down. They're going to not be saved. Luke 20, Jesus talks about the stone which the builders rejected. It's one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the new but but jesus quotes it the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces that's a good thing you want to be broken to pieces but on whomever it falls it will scatter him like dust it's a little different metaphor being used there if you stumble on the stone and it breaks your heart to pieces that's a good thing but if you don't stumble on the stone it'll come and crush you well here he He's flipped it, Simeon has. It's a little different. And he said some people will come along and they'll stumble over Christ and they'll fall. They'll be lowered in God's sight. They're going to hell. They're going to suffer. Not that they won't hear the gospel again, but the idea is they continue to reject it and reject it and reject it. But there's a second group that hears the gospel in Israel and they'll believe and they'll show fruit of repentance. They'll They'll be raised up. Literally, the word here is the same for resurrection. Not just that they'll be raised up in God's sight from a humbled position, because it's often said that the poor of spirit will be exalted, but they'll be resurrected. Some who will fall down into the pits of hell, some who will be resurrected to eternal life. Two groups. There's always two groups. There's two choices, to fall or to rise. To be broken in your spirit over your sin and trust in Christ, or to fall and stumble over the gospel forever. Jesus says, don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. How is that possible? I thought he was the peace of salvation. He is for those who are saved. He is their peace. But if you're not saved, he's not peace. He's a sword. He's going to cut you away. He's going to slice you away. The gospel of Christ, it provokes some to faith and others to unbelief. They hadn't thought about it. They don't really care. And then suddenly they're presented with it and it makes them angry that they heard the gospel. You've had a few of those experiences probably if you talk much about your faith and talk much about the gospel. It angers people. Don't talk to me about the Bible. Don't talk to me about that. They're, they're rejecting it. Others just go along kind of passively in life. No big deal. I'll worry about it later. They're passively rejecting it. But here he says, lines will be drawn, Simeon does, to Mary. He's telling Mary this. And Jesus again said, he who's not with me is against me. There's no middle ground. There's no middle group. You notice that Simeon says, there's those who fall, and there's those who are raised up, resurrected. Jesus says, there's those who are with me. There's those who are against me. Well, isn't there a lot of neutral people, you know, in America? Jesus says, there's those who are with me. There's those who are against me. So the neutral people are really what? They're against Christ. They may not realize it. We should love them. We should care for them. We should proclaim the truth to them. But you're either with him or not. Which group are you in? That's the question we ought to ask. Which group are we in? 
Which group? Not, not, not just if we were there when Simeon said these things, but now today as we read these things, what group are we in? Are we for him or are we against him? The famous uh, commentator and preacher J.C. Ryle says, are we for him? Are we against him? Do we love him or do we neglect him? Do we stumble at his doctrine or do we find it life from the dead? Let us never rest till these questions are satisfactorily answered. We've got to ask these questions of ourselves. He's also not just this stone that we stumble. Some people will stumble over. Others will be raised up. But he's also a sign, Simeon says to Mary, a sign to be opposed. He's a sign to be opposed. Jesus' own people will refuse to acknowledge him. You see a sign on the road, and it says you better turn left. And you say, you know, I don't care. I'm not going to turn. I'm just going to keep going. And then you see another sign, you better turn left. I don't care. I'm opposing that sign. What's going to happen eventually? You're going to run off a cliff, run into the ocean. You heard about these people who follow Google Maps until they basically go into the ocean and some of them have died. That's what Google Maps says. I got to keep going. And the signs on the highway are all saying, watch out, road closed ahead, right off the cliff into the ocean, dead. There's a sign. Jesus is a sign. And we have to listen to that sign. But he will be a sign that people will oppose. They will reject him. Even though he's just eight days old, it's hard to think Mary could have believed that. Here's this cute baby, and he's going to be the savior of the world, and people will reject him? People will oppose him? Simeon says yes. The Holy Spirit, through Simeon, says yes. And he stops right in the middle of talking about everybody else, and now he's talking right about Mary. A sword will pierce even your own soul. It's not just everybody else that's going to suffer. It's not just everybody else who's going to struggle over this. But in a sense, you're going to struggle as well. Not like the unbeliever that struggles, but you're going to struggle because of the sword piercing your own soul. Because of that opposition. Because people are against Jesus, they're going to kill him. And Mary's going to be there to see it. She's the only one, do you know that? She's the only one who was there at his birth and is going to be there at his death. The only one who saw both of those. We're not aware of anyone else who was there at the birth and the death of the Messiah. And it's going to be her own son. Yes, the son of God, but her son as well. And this sword is not just this little sword that the Romans used. No, here Luke chooses, or Simeon really as he speaks in Greek, is choosing to use the massive sword that the barbarians used. You would think, being familiar with the Romans, that he would use that little gladius about that long. He'd just stick it in. No, it's the huge two-edged sword that we often think about when we think of ancient swords. The one that would just hack away at the body. The Thracians used such a sword. The barbarians. That's how painful it's going to be. It's a graphic image here. It's going to be painful to your heart, Mary. She's going to be pierced with sorrow. She's going to watch her own son die. Her own son's going to die and be pierced. She will be pierced in the heart as he is pierced on the cross. She's watching her son die. She's there at the foot of the cross. All the disciples run away. The women are there with Mary. And she's watching the Savior of the world be crucified. But we know he was raised again. She would have rejoiced as she found that out and got to see him as well. Well, the very last part here. Let's look at the end of verse 35. To the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. He's going to be a sign to be opposed. Now he talks to, to Mary, Simeon does, and he comes back to this sign to the end, to the purpose, to the goal that 
thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Why has God planned this? Why has God decreed that he would be a sign? And why? Because people will oppose him and it will show where they stand. You won't have to wonder. You'll be able to see. Because people will be against Christ. Jesus, John 3.19 says, This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. You're walking in darkness. Why in the world would you reject the light? You don't think you need it. You think the darkness is fine. And that's what people thought. They wanted it their way. And who is this guy coming in here telling us how to live? Who is this guy coming in here challenging us on the Bible? Well, he's the Messiah and you better listen to him. They didn't. Even today we see this, don't we? Don't we see people who claim to believe in God? They talk to Christian talk, but you get in a conversation with them. They really don't like to hear what the Bible says. It's sad. They, they don't really want to hear it. They reject it. They hate it. Well, Jesus came to be our peace if you trust in Him. He came to be the light of salvation. He came to be the sword, which if you're a believer is a good thing because when that sword slices, you're on the right side. Don't pat yourself on the back. That's not you doing it. That's God. But realize all of these things here are talking about a person. Who is the salvation? It's a person. It's not just a thing. It's a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin. He he lived a perfect life. He shined the light of truth into the world. He died on a cross for sinners. He was raised again on the third day for sinners, all according to the Scriptures. He continues to sit at the right hand of God today. He will return to the earth someday, raise the dead, and reign with them forever and ever. Salvation is about a person. He was rejected by men, opposed by many, but he will return to finally redeem the earth and bring in his kingdom. I pray that we might see Christ for who he truly is. Oh, that we might see Christ for who he truly is, that we might look to him for salvation, that we might rejoice this holiday season as we think of that little baby who would become our Savior that died on the cross. He already was our Savior, but He became your personal Savior the moment that you trust in Him, the moment that you turn from your sin. Well, let's ask Him to do that work in our hearts right now. Lord, how wonderful Your Scripture is. It teaches us the way of salvation, that Jesus Christ is the way of salvation. He is a, a person, truly God, Truly man, the one who was born on this earth. He was the son of God come down from heaven to be born, to take on the humble state of a man. And he died for sinners. All of us here are sinners here today. Every one of us in this room, God, we're all sinners. But I pray, Lord, that we would put our trust in you. Some already have and are continuing to do so and others need to. Others need to do it. They're called to do it. You're calling out to them through this passage to do it. So we pray that you would change their hearts, that you would make them yours, that they could claim these things, this peace, this light. We pray that you would do that miraculous work in their hearts. Let us rejoice in this day because our Savior has come. Amen.